HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Union Beer. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. It's What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And we have a great show lined up. Uh, once again, my, my beloved uh, guest and frequent commentator and all-around guru, Tom Philpott, is joining us. In case you don't know Tom, he is the food and agriculture reporter for Mother Jones. Uh, prior to that, he was at Grist for five years, and his work on food politics has appeared in Newsweek, Gastronomica, and The Guardian, as well as those two previously mentioned publications. And Tom and I have been talking for about a year about the impact of agricultural runoff on the water supply of several Midwestern cities, uh, most notably Des Moines and Toledo, Des Moines, Iowa, Toledo, Ohio. And um, Des Moines, Tom, by the way, welcome to the show. (laughs) Sorry. Hey. Hey. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Are you in New York right now? No, I am in Austin right now, getting on a a plane in a little while. Yeah. um, Getting apprehensive that I might be waiting around the airport, but what's the situation in New York? Uh, at the moment, clear skies and no no bad weather uh, expected. In fact, it's calmed down a lot since the weekend where we had pretty high winds, but I, d- I don't think you'll have any problem getting into the city. Wonderful. So, yeah. And, and so the, the, the hurricane went a different direction and, and it's over as a phenomenon? or is, is Yes, I would say so. I mean, at the end of the week, I think we're expecting heavy rains again. But uh, yeah, it poured with rain and it blew a gale all weekend for sure. I mean, we had gusts. I was up in the country and the trees were whipping around and singing their song. So um, and the surf was pretty high. But uh, it's it seems to have calmed down. It, it veered out off to sea. I mean, it's a good thing you don't live in North Carolina anymore, honey. <laughs> I know. Oh my, my God! Um, I've got family still farming there, and it's just maybe before the, the the hurricane thing was going on, it um, rained all week. Yeah. Uh, and, and then and then the hurricane came in, and right. so 
After an incredibly dry summer. Yeah, horrible. I mean, we had that all up and down the East Coast, I think. I mean, I don't recall rain, uh, one single rainstorm in the month of July and only one or two days of rain in the month of August, which was great yeah. for people who want to go away and go to the beach. But it was terrible for anybody who gardens and certainly for our friends out in California. Um, yeah. Tom, you're going to be doing, before we get uh, going on the Des Moines uh, lawsuits, let's talk for a second about why you're coming to New York. You have an event coming up at St. John the Divine. Is that tomorrow evening? It is tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, and I am super excited. Yeah, tell us. Excited. what's What are you going to be doing? You're going to be moderating or you're going to be talking with Karen Washington. Yes. And tell us I'm about the people. It's, so it's the opening of the of this exhibit, The Value of Food, mm-hmm. uh, which is going to be grand and dramatic if history is a guide to what they do at St. John the Divine. And, um, and so they asked me to convene a conversation about it. And, you know, I lived in New York for about seven years uh, from 98 to about 2004, 2005. Really? And it was really in that time when I... Sort of came to political consciousness around food. Yeah, and I was just thinking about that space. You know, Saint John the Divine, New York, the food movement, and how the food movement has always. New York has always been sort of a, the central player and innovator in the food movement on all levels, from community gardens in the poorest neighborhoods of the city to you know cuisine from people like Colicchio and Down Barber, right? You, you know, tapping the local. And so I, um, I, can, I got this idea, let's bring together two people from wildly different parts of New York, sort of the New York cultural, political milieu, both part of the food movement, from, but from wildly different, different uh, perspectives, right. and have a conversation about the food movement in New York and where it's going. They're going to tell their stories about how they got into it. Um, and then, you know, I got to say, both were in, very inspiring to me in the early, late '90s, early 2000s when I was getting into this. But in in the community garden in Brooklyn at a time when uh, Giuliani was trying to shut the gardens down, mm. and Karen was a uh, a major leading light in the movement to save those gardens. Yes, and uh, just an inspiring figure for me. And then, meanwhile, Colicchio was running these restaurants like Kraft that were. Doing something I thought new with food, like sort of trying to bring it, bring sort of fine dining down from this, you know, really fussy level and focus on ingredients, focus on simple techniques like braising. Um, and then, you know, so I was inspired yeah. by Felicio's food. And then, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, a few years later, he becomes this major activist on food policy issues. Indeed which is what he's doing now in addition to his restaurant. Yes. And so I'm just really excited to bring these two people together in this grand space at the start of this incredible exhibit. Wow. I, I you know, you are, you're tearing me apart because um, Marion Nessel is signing uh, copies and giving a, you know, reading and a talk uh, for her new book, Soda Politics. Oh, um, no, I did not at know At the that. same time, at 6 o'clock down at NYU. And so I'm just like, and I said to Marion, because I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago about the book, and of course, the book is fabulous. If you haven't read it, Tom, I totally I recommend have, yeah. it. It's just I, wonderful. Um, yeah. It's hard to imagine something like that being a page turner, but it really is, despite how densely packed it is with information and tables and graphs. And I mean, you just end up, you know, your jaw's on the floor pretty much every other page. 
page. Um, yep. But anyway, <laughs> right? Um, but anyway, uh, but it's so readable. But so I, I don't know, you're tipping me in the balance of St. John the Divine, uh, not the least reason for which that I live about three blocks away from there. So. <laughs> well, here's what I give you permission to do. Yes. Our RSVP for it this event um, and go see Marion and then hop on the train, maybe meet, leave Marion a little early, hop on the train and come up to our event. And if you're a little late, um, as the MC, I will say, Hey, that, that woman in the back, let her in. Okay. <laughs> I might do that. I really, because I don't want yeah. to miss Marion's thing just because I want to, you know, show support. Um, Cause she's been so great to us here at heritage and she's such a wonderful guest. And I personally like her so very much. Um, but anyway, yeah, she's terrific. Right. But I, I don't want to miss your event and I've never met Karen Washington, but I have interviewed Tom Colicchio quite a few times for various reasons. Um, yeah. and I, so I know him pretty well. He's, he's a really cool guy. I like Tom a lot. Yeah. And I, oh, yeah. I love the fact that he's become such an activist. Um, because when Kraft opened up, his personal assistant is a good friend of mine at that time. His personal assistant was a good friend of mine. And, um, 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 and, and the political stuff was only just beginning to percolate for him, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was back in, I don't know, maybe 2000, uh, when Kraft opened, 2001 or two. Right around there, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't, I think, until really about 2009, 2010 that he started getting really intense and starting to testify in front of Congress about hunger issues and, and uh, about agricultural issues. So it's, you know, he's been remarkable in uh, the, the swiftness with which he has informed himself because he is really well informed. Um, oh, yeah. And the and the ferocity with which he you know proselytizes. So, but anyway, let's let's move on to our topic at hand because um, we have yeah. quite a lot of uh, material to cover. This is a really interesting case. So um, let's just recap for a second. So Des Moines, Iowa, the Municipal Waterworks of Des Moines, Iowa, is suing. Oh, and let me just say this. I was just in Des Moines for the Nyman Ranch uh, Par Farmer Appreciation Dinner about a week ago. Right. And um, I. Uh, you know, the, I was walking across the river at night, um, which runs through the Raccoon River, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the smell of the water was literally stomach churning. I mean, it was sort wow. of a combination of dead creature, you know, dead or decomposing flesh, manure and chemicals. Oh, and that's pretty much what is going on in that water yes. supply. Yes. Um, and then when I took a sip of tap water at the dinner table at night, it was like drinking from literally drinking straight from a swimming pool. That much yeah. chlorine was in the water right, because it was right. it's yeah. impotable. And then when I was leaving, I mentioned to the I had to I had to actually pay for my bottled water in the hotel room. And, yeah. and I said, well, I couldn't possibly drink your tap water. It tastes horrible. And she's, she looked at me and she said, well, of course you couldn't drink the tap water. Nobody does. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. just like See? gobsmacked. Yeah. Because, of course, in New York City, we have wonderful water. You know, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. good. Anyway, so they're suing the three upriver counties for pollution from ag runoff. Tell us how that uh, came about. I mean, that's a pretty radical step to take for waterworks to start suing other parts of the state, right? It is. And, um, and you know, the way that the politics work in, in Iowa, it's very unusual to see a, a city agency, a government agency of any kind, challenging big ag. Yeah. But there's, a, there's this, this, this guy named Bill Stowe, who's the director of the Waterworks there. And, you know, I think he just really cares passionately about putting clean water out to his city. In other words, he's doing his job. Right. And in the course of doing his job, he's been finding 
that the the two rivers um, that 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 his city gets water from are routinely uh, full of nitrates at over the EPA limit. Right, which is and, ten and parts per billion, and it's like ten parts per billion, and they're finding and eighteen so, and twenty parts per billion. Yeah, and so what the city has had to do, I believe it was around twenty years ago, is buy this huge contraption that mm. denitrifies the water, uh-huh. and it you know. Because it's very expensive to run, um, they they run it when they, they run it only when you know the the threshold gets above ten parts per billion, and uh, so they've been running it for years, and he's been complaining about it for years, and uh, and it was kind of at the stasis. Uh, but then in the last two years, he started getting more and more days where the city was running its uh, its its machine. Right. And costing the city, I think the number is, it's in my piece, and I don't have up right now, but I think it's like 100000 a day or something. Yeah, it's very expensive. Very, very expensive. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, and, you know, repeated complaints from the waterworks. And, you know, this is also happening in cities and towns all throughout Iowa and sure. throughout the Corn Belt. And, um, and all throughout Ohio as well. I mean, as Toledo yeah, has shown. Exactly. So, yeah. All through the Corn Belt. And so he's... Um, He's complaining, and, you know, the response is like, oh, let's do this voluntary program to get farmers to use nitrogen fertilizer a little bit more uh, efficiently or use a little bit less. And then, meanwhile, the readings keep coming over 10 parts per billion. And so finally he got signed up and said, look, I'm suing these three counties. They've got what's called drainage districts. Yes, and so what this is is these are these are counties above above Des Moines that are on, on very fragile land, and um, in order to to farm there, you've got to put in these these uh, drainage tiles that are also called you know they're called tiles, but um, think of them as pipes, right? Because the, the soil doesn't drain very well, huh. and so you you know you put you apply fertilizer on it, it rains, and because it doesn't drain very well. What you would get without these pipes is you get this really swampy kind of wetland kind of situation where you can never grow food. Right. And so they've, they've invested, these, these farmers have gotten together and invested in these drainage systems that allows them to farm. And guess what? It, it's draining out water that is full of nitrogen. And so you know, this is, you know, of all the kinds of, you know, industrial scale corn farming, the ones that are on these drainage tiles are the ones that produce the most runoff. Because you yeah. know, you're literally, you know, depositing the water that's been through, you know, that's been um, had this nitrogen added to it. You're depositing it into these pipes that are draining into these rivers. I mean, it doesn't take much of a sleuth <laughs> to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And so what he's saying is that because because it's this drainage system, this is what the lawsuit says. Then it is a point source which, under the Clean Water Act. Point sources of pollution, like the pipe coming out of the back of a factory with you know foul water coming out of it, right, are, must be regulated under the Clean Water Act. Right, and if it's regulated under the Clean Water Act, then you start testing the water as it comes out, and if it's over the legal limit, you've got to stop doing what you're doing. And so right. that's what the that's what the lawsuit is trying to do is basically get these farms to be regulated under under the Clean Water Act. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, well yeah, just one more thing about sure. it is that. You know, he also says that they've been running it, running this machine so much and it's so old that they're about to have to spend many, many millions of dollars on a new one. Yeah. And this is something that the people of 
Des Moines are expected to just pick up the bill quietly and and walk away. And he's saying, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, I think I read that it was something like $180 million to replace this machinery. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. And so and also it should be noted that uh, just to run the machine that they currently have, which is probably quite inefficient given its age and and the age of the technology, um, that is also being paid for by the taxpayers in Des Moines. Um, I'm amazed that there isn't, you know, much more of a because when I was researching for the show, I was obviously reading a lot of articles in the Des Moines Register. And um, it was amazing how um, how pro ag. (laughs) Pretty much everyone is there. Um, One of the things that really struck me is that there's another county called Green County. The three counties that are being sued are Buena Vista, Sac, and Calhoun, I think it is. And then there's a fourth county, Green County, which, uh, strangely enough, is not being sued, but it also does the same thing. It's a very ag-intensive, pork-intensive county in Iowa. And the, um, the Iowa board chairman, John Muir, and the county drainage clerk who runs these drainage tiles for them, uh, Michelle Fields, um, they, they had the following quotes, and this was in the Jefferson Herald. Um, Muir asked, how do you distinguish natural nitrates in the river from agricultural runoff? There is no right. baseline for the Raccoon River for us to know what's excessive and what's not. But why does that even matter? I mean, who would even bring that up? It's, I mean. Well, well this is a very old dodge that industry, like heavy, sort of heavy industries have used for years mm-hmm. and um, sort of industrial agriculture uses it. And it says, well, you know, sure, you're finding this in the water, but what's to say it comes from us? Right. And, you know, you hear that about um, the, the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, because the same nitrogen that's in the water that's fouling up the water supply in Des Moines. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, reporting the story that just gobsmacked me was that they, what Des Moines does was that it collects these nitrates, and because of various regulations and expenses, they, and they don't like doing this, but they put the nitrates right back in the water, and it washes downstream. Oh my God! Um, yeah, and that, you know that's another thing that he's complaining about. He's like, sure. "You need to pay for us to deal with this because we can't afford it." Right. And it's perfectly legal to do it because he's not a net. Um, we're not uh, adding net nitrate to the water. Right. But right. anyway, so the same battle t- is taking place on a bigger scale about the Gulf of Mexico dead zone, the giant yeah. algae bloom in the Gulf of Mexico, and if you look at and so the industry, industry says, you know, uh, you know, uh, human, you know, people's lawns run off, uh, human, human sewage uh, gets in into water at various places, especially after storms. Yeah. You know, what's to say that these nutrients are coming from agriculture? Well, the U.S. US Geological Survey has done several studies on it, tracing it, and the great bulk of nitrogen. Um, you know, in this macro study in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. the great bulk of nitrogen and phosphorus comes from corn and soybean farming and livestock. Right. Um, you know, and it's mainly, you know, in the Midwest, mainly industrial-scale pig farms. And so that stuff about, you know, how do, how do you know it's coming from us? Um, you know, how, how can you distinguish? It's just a smokescreen. Oh, totally. I mean, they must be able to identify these um, nutrients uh, just through chemical analysis. I mean, naturally occurring nitrates and phosphorus probably have a different thumbprint uh, molecularly than those that are used in agriculture. I'm sure there are other means yeah. of identifying it quite positively as being something from farming as opposed to something that naturally occurs in the environment. Um, sure. I mean, it exists at very low levels in the environment. Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, nitrogen, obviously, is a huge... The reason why we add nitrogen 
and we fix it with legumes is because it's a, it's a huge limiting factor in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And that tells you that there's not a whole lot of it splashing around in the natural. Right. So that, those arguments are um, just the lamest, most appealing. <laughs> And yet somehow the citizens don't seem to be seeing that. I mean, you know, it's it's really hard to square this. I mean, oh, so, so to go back to the governor, uh, Terry Branstad, who has always sided with Big Ag in the past. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And, and as you mentioned in the opening, um, he said, you know, we don't have to, you know, government intervention is overkill. And, and why don't we just let farmers regulate themselves or regulate this yeah. issue themselves? And then he pointed to two farms. Uh, there were two farms in this article about, you know, that gave his response. Um, and the farmers said, well, yes, we're planting cover crops and we're doing this and we're doing that. But um, those were relatively small farms, for one thing. Um, yeah. But also, like, what is the evidence to support that other farmers are following suit? I mean, is there any great uh, – Do you, have you heard of any sort of farmers group that is addressing this? Uh, you know, because surely they must be concerned about the pollution downstream. It's hard to imagine that they don't have any um, thoughts or, you know, uh, political sense about this. What's, well, what's... To, take, to take a step back, uh, I think there's, there's, there's two things to, to understand. Mm-hmm. One of them is if you're going to grow – you know, so one of the things that agribusiness says is, well, farmers would never over-apply nitrogen because it's an expensive input, and why would they apply too much that they would just be wasting their money? Right. But that is taking advantage of people not understanding how farming works. Right. And it's the thing about corn, if you're going to get maximum yield out of corn, and if you're a farmer going through the trouble to grow thousands of acres of corn, you're trying to get maximum yield. You're trying to get as many bushels of corn out of out of every acre as you can. Sure. And so corn is a heavy nitrogen feeder. Okay, it takes a lot of nitrogen, especially these sort of hybrid breeds of corn that we use. Yeah. And um, if you're going to get a maximum yield, so the the corn plant in the spring, it, you know, after you plant it and it's doing its you know really rapid growth and it's in this really high growth phase, it's going to have at different times in a given week or a given month or even in a given day, it's going to have different nitrogen. It's going to have different opportunities to take up nitrogen and turn it into plant growth. Sure. And if you don't have all the nitrogen it could possibly need on those heavy days, then you're going to miss, then you're going to miss an opportunity for growth. You're going, to miss, you're, going to, you're going to sacrifice a little bit of yield. Right. And so what you do is you apply nitrogen as if the heaviest days are all the days. And, uh-huh. um, and so you get, you sort of over apply to make sure you have enough for, for that, uh, for that time. Right. And as a result, um, even the best practices, uh, the best sort of precision agriculture, that corn plant is taking up about half of that nitrogen over the course of the growing season. Right. And so the other half is left to volatilize and become nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse, a very, very potent greenhouse gas. Right. We're going to talk about or, that in a minute. Yeah. Or leach into the soil, or leach into the water and go foul up someone's drinking water or go feed an algae bloom somewhere. Right, right. And that's, that's just a fact of the matter. Now, the second thing that I think is really important, and this is kind of getting back to your question, the, um, the uh, practical farmers of Iowa have looked really closely at this. They're sort of a you know sustainable ad. They, they don't push organic, but they just want people to think, think about things in a more right. long-term, sustainable way. And I talked to an expert from, from there, and they say that the best science says that the real problem that's happening with, 
with Des Moines. And the reason why you're getting these high nitrogen readings in November, December, and January when there's no corn growing is that when you leave the ground bare in those months and there's nothing taking up that nitrogen, mm. then you get a storm or you get some melting snow or something like that, and you're just tearing away that extra 50, you know, 40 to 50% of nitrogen that you applied in the last season, right. and it's just, go, it's just going away. And what she says is that if you, she said it, if you took those three counties, those three districts, and 70% of farmers just put in a cover crop in, uh, in the off-season, just yeah. some rye or something, some kind of grass cover crop, Sure, it would take up the nitrogen, hold it in, and then as it died, be ready to release it the next season. And, uh, and you know, back to your, your question about cover crops, um, it's vanishingly small, the number of farmers that actually use cover crops in Iowa. This is and what you know, I don't reason, understand. The reason is, like, why would I go to the expense of putting in this cover crop when it's not, it's not a cash crop um, and it's going to be a pain in the neck to, you know, plant, it, you know, plant into it in the, in the spring, which actually is long because... It, um, if, if you do it right, you can get a great weed suppression from it, from yeah. organic matter on top. But, you know, they, they don't use that. They use other ways to suppress weeds and um, cover crops, herbicides. Yes. Um, but, and so, you know, there's just, they feel like they've got no incentive to do it, and so no one's doing it. So this nitrate is just blowing away. Right. It's, I mean, we're going to come back to the cover crop issue, but we should take a short break for a sponsor drop right now. And, uh, and we'll be right back with Tom Philpot of Mother Jones talking about a groundbreaking suit in Iowa to control water pollution. In 1996, L. Knife & Son acquired Union Beer Distributors, which was originally located on Union Avenue in Brooklyn, but has since expanded to its present location alongside the English Kills Canal in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Union Beer has grown dramatically in the last decade as the primary distributor of Anheuser-Busch products for Kings County, Brooklyn, through the hiring and development of the best people in the industry. In 2003, Union Beer acquired a powerful catalog of specialty brands, which immediately positioned them as the craft beer supplier to accounts in Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Union perpetually tweaks their portfolio to maintain the highest level of stylistic breadth with the most coveted brands available. Through the highest possible level of service, outstanding salesmanship of the ultimate lineup of brands, and a paramount focus on education on all levels, Union Beer has solidified its position as the only source for the best selection of beers in the 14 counties of southeastern New York. For more information, visit greatbrewers.com. Here's what Heritage Radio Network would sound like without donations. It's not as good as the show you were just listening to, is it? 
Give us a few bucks. Help keep us running. HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Click the Donate tab on the top right corner. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> but I guess that? I'm back. <laughs> this is What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and my guest today is Tom Philpot. We're talking about a groundbreaking, um, really unusual um, move by Des Moines, Iowa, to sue upriver agricultural counties uh, for pollution of their water supplies. Um, and you and I were just talking about the cover crop thing. Um, cover crops are, I can't imagine that they are more expensive to plant and maintain than nitrates? Correct right. me if I'm wrong. I mean, this hey. is, I really don't understand this. So here's a, here's what the research says that they're actually not more expensive to 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 deal with than just dumping on nitrates. I mean, you're still going to use nitrates. You're still going to use nitrogen fertilizer if you're one of those big farms and you use cover crops. But you can use a lot lot less. Right. And you can hold in what you what you use a lot more efficiently for the next season. So you're sort of building it up instead of just letting it wash away every year. But the situation is that. You know, there's a trade-off between um, management-intensive and uh, money-intensive. Yeah. And so to, to do a successful cover crop system, you know, you could do a successful cover crop system over thousands of acres um, as long as you um, you maybe had one more crop in the rotation than just corn and soybeans. And one thing I was looking at the, those three counties that were, you know, in question um, all of them have gotten, all of them got hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies from 95 to 2012, uh-huh. according to the EWG. Hundreds of millions of dollars uh, between uh, 95 and 2012, according to the EWG farm subsidy database. Right. And they were all very skewed to corn over soybeans. So I think uh-huh. these are really corn intensive counties that really do a lot of, um, you know, corn, 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 and then maybe one soybeans every every few years. So they're wow. really corn intensive. But if you did corn and soybeans in a third crop, like an oats or a wheat, um, and you you know you did things like roll kill the cover crop. So instead of um, dousing herbicides, you rolled with a special implement, a tractor that would kill the cover crops, and then you plant your crops into it. Yeah. And if you uh, included some legumes along with the grasses in your cover crop mix, you could basically use about 10% of the nitrogen, uh, leach very little of it, have way lower expenses. And it seems like this big win-win-win. Yeah. But it's also a lot more trouble. Right. And it's a, more lot, work. a lot more fuss yeah. than, um, than just basically unleashing the spray tank. Right. And... Um, and, you know, these farmers, you know, another thing about farming is that it is a very high-pressure business in that you're kind of caught between the input suppliers, you know, the sort of Monsantos and the fertilizer suppliers, yeah. and then the buyers who are very highly consolidated, your Archer Day, Daniel Smithlands, your Cargills, your big meat companies that right. buy a lot of corn and soybeans for feed. And, um, and you're sort of caught between these two forces, and... You know, the, the government basically, um, the only reason why you're profitable at all is because various government programs between subsidies and insurance and things like that. And you've been doing this thing sort of successfully for a while in these conditions, and it's really hard to imagine, like, why would I make this change when this is sort of working for me? 
Right. And I, th- and I think that's what Bill Stowe at the Money Waterworks is trying to do is, you know, give a little incentive to change. Um, you don't want to change? Okay, you're, you're going to be under the Clean Water Act. And when you're under the Clean Water Act, you're going to have to make some changes. You're going to pay. Very fast changes. You're going to pay. Because yeah. uh, part of the, the, the suit would I mean, it, because they would be then regulated as a point source for pollution, uh, they already have to pay a certain amount for the for the district, the district tile oh, yeah. management, and they will have to pay that much more in order to that's do that's these that's remediations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I want to go back to um, to this guy, Bill Stowe, who, um, according to the Des Moines Register, this was really interesting when he brought this suit. Um, he's actually being spied on now. I'm not surprised by that I mean, at all. He, there's a uh, quote where it says he um, the, the uh, an order was sought uh, once it became clear that the counties were seeking personal information about political conversations that aren't even relevant to the litigation, and essentially they have asked for records. This is the counties themselves have asked for records on my personal and home cell phone, which involves call logs and text messages. And their specific request was very broad, but through conversations with our lawyers, they've made it very clear that they wanted to know the underlying politics of our decision to sue. Well, I mean... It can't be <laughs> how hard it is yeah. to figure out. It's like you guys are polluting yeah. our water. We can't drink it. We can't even. Yeah, yeah. And, and we should point out that that nitrogen um, pollution in water is very dangerous to infants and young children and to the elderly and anyone with an immunosuppressed uh, system. Very dangerous. Right. It'll cause blue like, baby syndrome, for example, in your infants. I mean, yeah. you can't. And, can, and they recommend not even bathing your child in that water. Yeah. So this and is not. You, and then you see like the knock-on effects, like you were just saying that you know in Des Moines people are like, oh God, no one drinks the water. Well, yeah. So what's, what are they doing? They're buying bottled water, generating all right. this plastic, generating all this waste, and so it's decisions made by these farmers are triggering all of these, you know, literally downstream effects, and there's no accountability for it. Right. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you, because um, we're almost running out of time, amazingly enough. Um, but I'm wondering, like, at, at sort of who, okay, this farmland we're talking about is corn and soy intensive, especially corn. And there's a lot of pork business up there because yeah, a lot of this is. stuff is coming from pork pollution as well. Um, but who are the, who are the, uh, the entities? Are they, are they Archer, uh, Daniel Midland type, you know, agribusiness, consolidated businesses like Cargill who are owning, you know, thousands of acres? Or are they sort of a mix? of small and independent farms plus the very big ones. I'm trying to get a picture of, of yeah. the, politi- the political structure of you know, the group that is basically advocating for status quo. So how, how does it break down? Well, you know, it turns out that those, those big companies like that, with, with exceptions here and there, those big companies are uh, way too smart to own farmland because if you own <laughs> farmland, you're taking in all this risk. Yeah. And they would rather put that risk off on independent farmers and so what these are are, um, you know, you know, this is Iowa we're talking about. So right. they tend to be very large scale, independent farms that are uh, very tight with these agribusiness forces. That they rely on them for for everything. You know, this is like the sort of uh, National Corn Grower Association types yeah. from uh, from Iowa. Th- those kinds of farmers who. Are, are very tightly allied and are in this system, I actually have a lot of sympathy for them because I do feel like they're caught between these these two forces, uh, the giant um, input suppliers and the giant buyers, and yeah. they're just doing the best they can, I think, for the most part. But they do get in league with them. Like, you know, the National Corn Growers is essentially 
Um, it's too strong to say a front group for ADM, but it's very closely allied with ADM and Monsanto yeah. and all of these companies. Sure. And so it, it is independent farmers. They tend to be large. Like I said, I was just uh, looking at their their subsidy records. And, you know, the three counties got close to a billion dollars oh in, in subsidies, you know, combined um, over that over that 12-year period. We shifted to a more um, insurance-oriented right. system of supporting farms. And the last farm bill, And I guarantee yeah. you they're all in those, you know, really generous subsidized insurance programs. And so these, you know, these tend to be large subsidized operations. Um, and then, you know, the, the pork uh, CAFOs, uh, pardon. Uh, the port capos tend to be, um, you know, very, very allied with the big uh, pork. Um, the big corn growers, like, of course. Yeah, yeah. or yeah, the, the pork companies themselves that run the slaughterhouses. Your, wow. you know, Smithfields and right. um, Tyson, uh, Tyson just sold its pork operation to JBS. So your Smithfields and your JBSs and things like that yeah. um, are uh, are very powerful up there. And so, and I, I think those are the companies that really, really benefit from from this, and really need to be held to account. Although they don't tend to directly own the farmland, right? But it's it's very similar to the contract farming issues that accrue when you are a contract farmer, and basically you don't own uh, anything but the houses and the manure. You know what it's I mean? Really, like the, it, it really is very similar. Yeah, you, I mean the. the you don't, Sorry, yeah, go ahead. you don't produce any of your own inputs. All of your inputs come from from outside. Right. So you get your chickens, you get your feed, you get your medications, you get everything, um, and then if the birds die, you own the dead birds, and you certainly own their manure, and you're expected to deal with it. And it's obviously this is the same kind of a of a system. Exactly. Very interesting. Um, I wanted to just move on uh, quickly because, like I said, we only have a few minutes left. Um, oh, we, we talked for a minute. You mentioned for a minute that the, um, that the uh, nitrogen oxidizes, becomes nitrous oxide, a powerful yeah. greenhouse gas. Let's talk a little bit about that. Um, what, what are the implications of that and how much of it is oxidizing or becoming part of the atmosphere? And, um, you know, what could be done about that aside from using less? Well, you know, most, most nitrous oxide... Um, emissions in the United States come from farms, and because corn farms use about, uh, you know, the corn crop uses about 40% of U.S. nitrogen, um, you know, you can do the math and say, yeah. yes, something close to 40% of, uh, of nitrous oxide emissions come from, uh, from corn crop, uh, farms. And this is a greenhouse gas that is, you know, not 10 times more, more potent than, than carbon dioxide or 20 or even 100, right. almost 300 times more potent Jim. than carbon. So this is a very, very potent greenhouse gas. Yeah. And it, it, it's really the same problem. It's really this, this idea that if we're going to maximize corn, if you're going to ma- maximize uh, corn output, then mm-hmm. you've got to over-apply fertilizer, and you're just leaving it in the field. And if you cover crops, um, you know, what the cover crop does is you, you plant the seed, and now you've got this nitrogen in the soil, and that nitrogen is, is going to into that rye seed. And so now you've got this rye crop that's sitting there. And you, you can look at a, a field of rye in the winter and think of it as this is a, uh, a field of embedded, um, kind of captured nitrogen. Yeah. And that nitrogen, because it's in that rye, is now not going to volatilize and heat up the atmosphere, nor is it going to leach off and screw up some of the drinking water. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you pile it back in, and you've got both 
organic matter, which is great for soil, right. and you've got uh, nitrogen for the next season's crop. Right. And, uh, and so that's, you know, it's a pretty simple answer. It <laughs> um, is. It's a very simple answer. I'm just, I'm, I just don't understand. Like, how much do, how much do ag extension schools um, have, you know, what kind of part do ag extension schools or agricultural colleges play in, in um, you know, not encouraging the use of cover crops? Because, I mean, it does seem like such an easy solution. And, yes, it does require more man hours and maybe more gas for your tractor. But aside from that, it's, you know, it seems like, as you said, such a win situation, win-win situation. Um, it just doesn't make sense to me that that isn't being promoted more for, to, to new farmers. And and the other benefit, which we've failed to mention, is that having that grass in place or whatever your cover crop is, it protects the soil from erosion through that's true and you build better soil matter and there's i think you and i talked a a year or so ago about a farmer that you interviewed in uh in the south somewhere who had built like three four inches of topsoil through planting crumber crops it was in ohio right right there in In ohio that's right um david brant yeah i mean that's that is a very important point that you know free home the the snow melt um, get a big storm and it's more and more often. You know, yeah. Mega storms coming from the west, and now, now your bare soil is completely vulnerable to being washed away. And right. Not just soil, but also all the agrochemicals in it. And um, and you're right. Cover crops would hold that soil in a lot better. And you know the other thing to say about them is that as you do it every year and you still organic matter. Then you get a drought, which is another major problem that's happening with the best in the test. Yes. And the fact that you've got all organic matter in the soil means it holds water a lot better. That's right. And you're a lot more resilient to to a drought. Right. You're more resilient to droughts and floods, and you're producing less greenhouse gases. Um, well, it's not delightful. I know. Um, we got We're we have only about five minutes left, so I wanted to. Um, yeah. So those are all all important points um, for people to recognize. But let's go back to the suit itself. Um, what? Uh, w- wait. Before we do that, I want to ask you one more question. Why hasn't the EPA um, air? You know, why isn't the air pollution an issue if nitrous gases, nitrous oxygen? Um, produces 300 parts per billion or 300, part, 300 times more um, greenhouse gas than even other potent gases. Why, well, is, why know, hasn't that become an EPA still, issue? You know, it's still trying to figure out how to regulate greenhouse gases. It's still, you know, long-awaited rules about how to do that. Uh-huh. Um, traditionally, agriculture has been exempted. Yes. Uh, one of the things that, you know, kind of new, you know, new-ish to the story in the 2009, 2010 uh, time frame. I was covering the Waxman-Markey negotiations, the negotiations over the climate bill yes. that uh, ended up failing. Yeah, and um, I was just stunned that before they even started, before they even started to really debate them, before they got out of that committee, whatever committee it was that was debating it, they had already exempted agriculture. Wow! Uh, already exempted exactly what we're talking about. So even if we ha- even if we had a climate, if that climate bill had, had had passed, there would be nothing in it about these nitrous oxide uh, emissions. And that is just because these these companies just have so much power on Capitol Hill. Yeah. I mean, it was stunning. I was like, oh, wait, I'm covering the story um, from an ag angle, and the ag angle's already been taken away. <laughs> <laughs> 
gee whiz, that's pretty scary. Well, what do you think will happen with this suit? If, for example, Bill Stove uh, wins his agricultural, uh, wins his suit against Big Ag, um, what do you think the result will be for, you know, Will it force legislation, for example, uh, on a on a more macro level, um, or do you think the EPA will be able to step in and and uh, you know make some regulations about agricultural water effluence? Uh, they failed with waters of the United States, as I understand. Um, yeah, but what will I, this give them more the, ammunition? Yeah, and I talked to a couple of lawyers that are kind of prominent in, in the Midwest in environmental law. And what they said was that the way the suit is structured is really specific toward this tile system. And so if you're in a place that's getting, um, you know, nitrate pollution, like I think Columbus, maybe there's not a lot of tiles involved in agriculture around uh-huh. over, over Columbus. Um, if you're not in a situation where there's tiles, then this suit's not going to apply. Oh. So it's really going to be for those places that, tend to be relatively rare, but they're really, really intense in the upper Midwest. Um, but what they also said was that it is going to, uh, if the suits succeed, then it will spur other places to creatively, like, how, okay, they use the Clean Water Act based on this tile argument. Right. How can, how can what kind of argument can we figure out to make the Clean Water Act apply to our, our situation of, Unclean water, right? Um, and so you're going to see more yeah. creativity uh, around that issue. And I think if there is a ruling, you could you could also see um, maybe progressive legislation uh, coming through because you know Congress could decide to put farming under the Clean Water Act. Now, progressive legislation is hard to imagine <laughs> in the foreseeable future, <laughs> but you could you could imagine something like that. What I wanted to hear from from the lawyers that I was talking to was, oh, yeah, this will set a precedent, and then everyone will have to snap, yeah. too. And that wasn't quite the answer I got. Right. That's unfortunate. Well, we have to leave it there, Tom, but uh, let us just remind people once again that tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, Tom Philpott will be speaking with Tom Colicchio, uh, the star chef, and uh, Karen Washington, who has been an uh, urban agricultural activist for lo these many years. At this point, it must be 10, 15 years at least, um, in a very interesting conversation that kicks off their exhibition called The Value of Food. Is, am I right about that? Yes, and Karen Washington has retired. You know, she was never a professional organizer. No. She just in her spare time, and she had a job as a nurse or something. I need to confirm that. But she had this whole other job. Wow. And she just retired last year. Incredible. Uh, or maybe a couple of years ago, and is now running a farm along with three other women um, <sighs> in New York, and it is in all the farmer's markets. It's, I mean, it's in Union Square Farmer's Market wow. and not, I don't know where else. And if I had my computer open, I could tell you what the farm is called, but I can't remember. It's something root. But uh, so Karen Washington is an amazing figure. Yes, she um, is. Not many people retire and say, I'm going to go start a farm. <laughs> and you can barely get her on the phone because yeah. she's like, oh, I'm at Union Square all day today, and tomorrow we're harvesting. And, you know, it's, it, she is incredible. Yeah. 
Well, Tom, thanks a lot for joining me today. As always, it's been a really fun and very informative conversation. And I think it has tremendous implications. This lawsuit, I think, has, you know, in spite of not hearing what you wanted to hear, I think it has great implications for the future in terms of protecting waterways uh, across the country. So, and I'll see you tomorrow at St. John the Divine. I'll definitely be there, although I may be a little bit late. But um, Look forward to it. Yeah, thank you. And uh, thanks to my sponsor, Union Beer. Um, and thanks to uh, my song today was, or my intro is, Dark Stars, and I don't know who the break music was, but um, but they were really good, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, they it, was were. Called, it was called That's Obesity. Good. Obesity, okay. Fittingly enough, yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, you guys, and we'll see you next week for another great show. Oh, no, we won't see you next week. I'm taking off next week, but I'll see you after that. Bye-bye. Have a good week. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 